Welcome back to HB Media Minute. Today, we're going to delve into the U.S. Supreme Court's recent ruling in a dispute involving whether Andy Warhol had the legal right to use someone else's photograph in making a silk-screened image of the pop music star Prince. It's a fascinating case that has interesting implications for copyright law, particularly in light of the growing relevance of artificial intelligence and other technologies. And who better to help us make sense of the case than today's guest, Haynes Boone lawyer Michael Lambert, who has closely followed and written about the Warhol matter. Michael is an Austin-based member of the firm's intellectual property practice group and focuses on media, entertainment, IP, and First Amendment litigation. Um, Before we get started, our usual disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. Topics we discuss are subject to change, legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. So, Michael, let's get into this um, exciting case. Can you give us the background the background facts? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Nathan. Really appreciate it. Um, so this case began in 1984 uh, when a photographer named Lynn Goldsmith, she licensed a black and white photograph that she took of Prince uh, for $400 to Vanity Fair magazine. Um, for them to use it as an artist, an artistic reference for an illustration. So then Vanity Fair commissioned Andy Warhol, the, the famous visual artist, um, to use the photograph to create a colorful illustration of Prince that was later published in the magazine. And that um, photograph was actually sort of known as called, it's called Purple Prince because it was, it was purple, right? The original photograph was black and white. Um, mm. Warhol also took it upon himself to make 15 other illustrations of Prince based on uh, Miss Goldsmith's photograph, and that's known as the Prince series. So 20 years later, after Prince died in, in 2016, the Andy Warhol Foundation, who was in charge of Andy Warhol's copyrights, um, licensed another piece from this Prince series called Orange Prince um, to Vanity Fair, actually, again, uh, for $10,000, but did not pay Goldsmith, um, the original photographer, or sought her permission for that license. And when was the, and, and then, I don't know if Lynn Goldsmith is still alive. Is she the one who originally filed the lawsuit? Yes, she's still alive. And actually, no, she wasn't. But when she learned about Orange Prince being on the cover, uh, she notified the Andy Warhol Foundation and said, you know, this is an infringement of my copyright and asked them to... Um, you know, to, to, to essentially give her some of the license or some of the credit. She wasn't even credited with the Orange Prince on Vanity Fair. Um, so actually, Andy Warhol Foundation took it upon themselves and sought um, a declaratory judgment, sort of raced to the court and got there first and sued her, um, alleging that, no, I we think there wasn't no copyright infringement, but actually this was protected under the Fair Use Doctrine, which we can talk about, which is a doctrine in copyright law that, allows certain uses of copyrighted works without the consent of the creator. But then Goldsmith, obviously, understandably, she filed a counterclaim against the Andy Warhol Foundation for copyright infringement, arguing that it was not fair use because the photos were used for the same purpose um, and that the Andy Warhol Foundation took licensing money that she should have um, received. I'm just curious. Would the, um, so the first use of, of the photograph on the, on the cover was in in the 80s and then so she didn't right. didn't file suit then i guess obviously she didn't waive her right to to sue however many years later well she originally earned a got a license for vanity fair for the original um use so she was happy with that it was the fact that 20 years later i see 
same photograph was used without her permission, without her receiving a license. I think if they would have gotten it, they would have asked and gotten a license from her for the second use. She probably would have been, she would have been fine with it. You know, if the price was right, at least. Yeah. And again, the really is the core issue in the case then, Michael, whether this is qualifies as fair use, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. That, that That's the core question here. It's actually even more narrow, narrower than that. So uh, fair use, actually, it began as a judge made law, but was later incorporated into the Copyright Act of 1976. Um, and fair use is really just intended to balance the exclusive rights that are given to copyright holders with the um, interest of the First Amendment for free speech and the ability um, for creators to build upon the works of others. So the Copyright Act outlines four factors that courts should consider when assessing whether a use is considered fair. Uh, and the first factor is uh, the court should look for at, look at the purpose and character of the use. So this factor usually considers how the original work is being used by the alleged infringer. The second factor considers the nature of the copyrighted work. Typically, it asks if the work is published or not and whether the, uh, the work is factual or more expressive. Um, the third factor is what's called the, they look for the amount and substantiality of the portion used. Basically, what that means is the court asks, how much of the work did you, original work did you use? And did you take the most important parts of the work? And then the last and fourth factor is the, the effect of the use on the potential market or value of the copyrighted work. So there, um, an important, the important question is really how that secondary use impacts the market uh, for selling or licensing the copyrighted work. And it's also, it's also fair, it should be noted that uh, the Copyright Act also says there are certain uses that are more likely to be considered fair uses. It's not dispositive, but it just sort of says that these uses are more likely to be fair use. And those are things like criticism, commenting, uh, news reporting, and, and research. Um, but um, in this case, actually, the first factor was the only one that the Supreme Court was considered. Um, and that was after the lower court rulings uh, made some decisions that we can discuss, too. And, and, and again, the first factor being uh, what, Michael? The, so the first factor is the purpose and character of the use. Mm -hmm. uh, it's become known as the transformative use test by lower courts because the essence of the question is whether the second user transformed the use from its original use. Um, so it's become known as a transformative use test, but the actual technical uh, definition in the Copyright Act is the purpose and character of the use, the secondary use. So, so stepping back just a second to, to understand, really, I, it sounds like the idea behind fair use is that you don't want to unduly stifle core First Amendment speech and creative expression. Um, is, is that so it's sort of looking at the, the degree to which this is creative expression and not not used primarily for commercial gain? Or is that overly simplistic? No, I think that that's really fair. And that's why it's sort of those uses that the Copyright Act outlines, you know, like research or scholarship mm -hmm. or teaching, you know, we want people to use copyrighted works for those purposes and not be afraid that they're going to face a copyright infringement lawsuit based off of those. So it is sort of to balance the economic interest that a copyright holder has, which is understandable, but a copyright is a monopoly, right? It's a, mono a monopoly over that work. So 
there needs to be a little bit of play and allow others to use that work um, to build and create new works and to also, you know, teach and, and use it as an education tool. And, and so when you look at that first factor, is, is, is this a trans, transformation of the original, the original, I guess, work, uh, work of art? Yeah. That, that's speaking to that. Is this, is this creative? Is this a, a type of expression? Right. That's how courts have simplified it is, is asking. And it, it makes sense, right? Like if you're tra- if you're transforming the use, then that means that you're, the purpose and character of the use is going to be different, which is what the first factor asks. And it tends to be the most important factor. Um, you know, the Supreme Court traditionally has said that the fourth factor, the, 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 the uh, impact on the market um, was the most important. But there have been other courts that said the first factor, the transformative use factor is is um, just as important. So generally, it's considered that the first and fourth factors are the most important factors. So, so tell tell us a little bit about what happened in the case leading up to the Supreme Court's ruling. Yeah. So the Southern District of New York, which was the lower court in this case, um, actually granted Andy Warhol Foundation's uh, motion for summary judgment and dismissed Goldsmith's counterclaim. Um, and in their eyes, they said it was plain to see that this Prince series was protected by fair use because uh, Andy Warhol's illustrations were transformative. They had a different character, new expression, they added new aesthetics and um, communicated a different message that was distinct from the original. Um, But two years later, actually, the Second Circuit um, reversed the district court's decision and held that the Prince series was not a fair use. And according to them, these illustrations were really not sufficiently transformative because, you know, the the original elements of the Goldsmith's, Goldsmith's uh, photograph remained. And in their eyes, the Andy Warhol didn't significantly add any, add any uh, expressive elements or alter them. Doesn't just, just, just lingering there, it seems strange in a way, doesn't it, to think of a court questioning sort of in some ways almost the artistic merit of a, of a Warhol <laughs> You know, I think that's the problem. That's the problem that teed up this case. And that's the problem that lower courts have been struggling with for so years because they sort of have been tasked with being artistic, um, you know, you know, artistic judges. And that's not something that, you know, a judge should 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 be. Uh, that's not their job. Right. Yeah. They're not they're not our critic. they're not our critics. <laughs> so I think that has been something that's been an issue before. And that was actually something that was discussed during the oral argument in this case. So the, the second circuit again decided this was not sufficiently transformative. Um, and then it was appealed to the Supreme court. How, how did the Supreme court decide? So in, a, um, in Supreme court in a, in a seven to two opinion, um, held that this first factor weighed against Andy, your Andy Warhol's use of the photograph. Um, therefore, um, his use was infringing and not a fair use. Um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote the majority opinion, and she sort of outlined what she saw as sort of a framework of what courts should um, look for when they're trying to determine the first factor. And she said that courts should balance the degree to which a use has a further purpose or different character against the actual nature of the use, whether that the nature is commercial or, or a nonprofit or non-commercial use. So under sort of that guide, the court found that, you know, Justice Sotomayor said, even though maybe Warhol added some new expression to the photograph, Mm -hmm. um, the works shared substantially the same commercial purpose. And that is that both of them were portraits of Prince. 
Um, and they were both used to depict a prince in a magazine, uh, magazine stories about prince and were licensed to the magazine. So if I can re- remember the four kind of four factors you laid out, it's really, it sounds like it was the first and maybe the fourth factor that were um, dispositive here. Correct to a certain extent, but the court was not asked to opine on the fourth factor. They were only asked to um, consider the first factor. And we can get into a little bit uh, later about the tension between those two factors that was pointed out um, in the court's opinion. But this this opinion was supposed to be it was narrowly uh, tailored to just the first factor. And again, so Sotomayor agreed with the Second Circuit that, that this was Warhol's work was not sufficiently transformative. Exactly. The, the court she used to work for. Correct. Yep. And you said this was a seven two. who who was in the who were the, the two? It's a surprising uh, pair. Uh, it was actually uh, Justice Elena Kagan, who actually um, going back for the past five years, has agreed with Justice Sotomayor on, on around 90 percent of her opinions, which is interesting. Right. So uh, Justice Kagan dissented in a very strong dissent. Um, and she was actually joined by Chief Justice Roberts. And uh, she really had a strong criticism of the majority opinion um, and, and sort of sort of like we were talking about, sort of attacked Justice Sotomayor's what she see, saw as sort of lack of artistic eye. Uh, she used language that the majority, you know, lacked an appreciation for the way that Andy Warhol's works were different aesthetically and in their message and that um that Justice Sotomayor, you know, ignored reams of expert evidence saying that this was a different, you know, more expressive use and that um, she really, according to Justice Kagan, uh, Justice Sotomayor really saw Andy Warhol as an Instagram filter and a, and a simple one at that, which is actually really interesting. Um, so she sort of just attacked them for not seeing what she thought was pretty obvious that this was was a transformative use and that Andy Warhol added a lot of creativity um, and message to um, the Prince series. And she also was very concerned, understandably, I think, and this came out in oral arguments, that um, this this ruling would stifle creativity, right? And that it would reduce new expression and new um, information. So that was sort of the, you know, the, the, the bulk of um, her criticism. Did Sotomayor sort of get into detail about what what would have, in her view and the majority's view, have qualified as transformative, or did they not? Did they simply say this doesn't strike us as sufficiently transformative and leave it at, leave it at that? Did they, in other words, did they did they lay out a clear framework for for artists going forward? Yeah, I think Justice Sotomayor was trying to be as clear as possible that really the commercialism part of it was very important, right? But if it, if the if if the if any world used this um, the the Prince photos for a, a non commercial purpose, she didn't license them to a magazine. Um, then it could have been considered a fair use. So actually, uh, Justice Sotomayor mentioned the the Campbell Soup series, which was sort of any um, iconic, world, right? Yeah. More iconic um, works. And he said, you know, and she said, oh, this is different because in that case, um, Andy Warhol was making a statement about consumerism and um, using the Campbell's advertising logo did not actually like supersede um, that use. And he wasn't using it to sell cans of soup. Um, So that was sort of a distinction that she made. And she also, Justice Sotomayor, tried to make some other distinctions. But Justice Kagan (laughs) 
basically did wasn't didn't really love the distinction she was making and, and accused her of slicing the bologna pretty thin, uh, <laughs> which is you know very Kagan esque um, phrase. Um, in, in, in any other opinions in in the in the case? Yeah, well, the the rhetoric was so heated between Justice Kagan and Sotomayor again, again, sort of uncharacteristically. Um, Justice Neil Gorsuch, joined joined by Justice Katanja Brown Jackson, wrote a concurring opinion. So they were in the majority, but they had a two part two person concurring opinion. And it's sort of I felt like he was trying to just kind of cool cool the room a little bit, and basically was saying. This is a very narrow decision, right? This applies just to these facts and that, you know, Elena, Justice Kagan's um, dissent concerning about artistic expression um, was sort of overblown. And he explained, as as our, our listeners may know, Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch is a chief um, proponent of the textualism view of statutory interpretation. And here he said... You know, nothing in the in this Copyright Act calls on judges to speculate about the purpose of an art, an artist and what they may have in their mind. Um, so he tried to sort of cool down things and say that this was really a very narrow decision just based on these um, specific facts. And, and that's that's a good segue into the next question that I have in my mind, which is sort of what impact will this decision have? I'm curious what artists think about it and what lawyers think about it. What, what's your takeaway, Michael? You know, it's hard to say. There's been um, views on both sides. There've been a, a fair amount of, of pieces written by by copyright lawyers, but also by artists that are really worried about this case and that it's going to curb expression and that it really may have an impact um, because it may it may cause some people to obviously face more copyright infringement lawsuits, but then also maybe just be a little bit more hesitant when they are building on other people's works. But there have been some, you know, also some views on the other side in which that this is pretty narrow. I think it. we just don't know. Mm-hmm. We just don't know how courts are going to interpret it. Uh, I, I think there inevitably will be a little bit pairing back of the fair use um, test over the past, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. There have been, you know, it's been documented that more cases more courts have found an increased amount of fair use than before. And so I think that may die down a little bit, but perhaps not dramatically, but I think it's something that we'll just have to sort of watch and um, see um, going forward. It's interesting to think about it. It's in the advent of, of artificial intelligence when they're using so much of, of kind of the storehouse of, of, you know, works that are out there and, and sort of, you know, recreating that. I just wonder Will that limit or will that lead to sort of more claims of infringement of works generated by AI and other technologies? Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. There's just so many questions right now um, at the intersection of copyright law and artificial intelligence. I mean, the basic questions of is are the outputs of um, artificial intelligence, are they actually copyrightable to begin with? And if so, who owns those copyrights? I mean, there's like that basic question still out there. Um, and that doesn't get into the, the, the weeds of other cases about um, what kind of uses may be fair use and, 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 and any of that. But, um, you know, there have already been a number of cases filed that are working their way through the court. So I think we'll have some um, preliminary answers soon. But as you'd expect, those are likely, likely will be appealed. So they could get take some while to... Um, 
to really have definitive answers. But in the meantime, I mean, I think a court, if a court is is faced with a question involving copyright law and fair use, they're going to look to this case, right? They're going to look to the Andy Warhol case as guidance on the first factor. And so this case, unless there's a new case that comes between now and then, um, will play a pr- pretty big role in how courts are deciding um, AI in the copyright space. In, in this aspect, less significant, but I'm wondering if um, if there's any lingering bad blood between uh, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor. I don't know, maybe they're, they're such pros that they went out to dinner the next night and let bygones be bygones. I feel like they have a lot more in common than they disagree with, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think it shows that they may be the leading voices on copyright going forward. Um, traditionally, uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice um, Breyer um, wrote a good amount of the copyright opinions and sort of seemed to be the leading voices. So I, I, it sort of seemed like the mantle was passed to Justice Kagan and Sotomayor, especially because of how passionate they felt about the issue, that they may be um, the ones that are sort of taking the lead in the copyright cases um, in the years to come. Interesting. So maybe we might be seeing more fireworks down down the road. Well, Michael, thank you very much. Before we sign off, I just want to invite listeners to visit the firm's website at Hainsman.com, where you'll find the firm's media and entertainment litigation practice page and lots of interesting material from our media, entertainment, First Amendment lawyers, including uh, their newsletter and an art, a recent alert um, article from from Michael and further analyzing this case, which I encourage uh, uh, listeners to check out. Uh, we invite you to check out the also the next issue of the Media Minute, which should be coming in the weeks ahead. Thank you so much. 